0: Esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of the science fiction classic, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beast. And you can own that science fiction classic as a paperback, as an audiobook, but the ebook, esteemed audience, the ebook is free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. You can't beat that, a science fiction classic. For free, once you're hooked on the series, come back with money for the Science Fiction Classics 2 sequels. It'll be a good time for you. Uh, Under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers. You can find out more about those. And more importantly, you can find thousands of interviews with literary agents, editors, authors, publicists, book people, the world's best people. uh, Available exclusively at middlegradeninja.com. I uh, couldn't be thrilled to esteemed audience to welcome my guest tonight, uh, Greg Van, it's, it's Van Ekaup, correct? That is perfectly pronounced, yep. Welcome, uh, Greg Van Ekaup. I um, appreciate you making the time for us. Esteemed audience knows that I never force my guests to suffer through the the torture of listening to me summarize either their book or their background. Uh, so if you would give a esteemed audience an overview of your background, and we'll go from there. Okay, uh, well, um, I, uh, I've been writing
1: since um, college, late high school. Uh, So far, uh, I think Fenris and Mata is my 10th published novel. I think that's about right. Um, Start to lose count a little. And I've been writing novels since the uh, first decade of the 21st century. I've done stuff for older readers. I've done stuff for middle grade readers. The stuff for middle grade readers is my favorite. Mostly, I do science fiction and fantasy. that's pretty much who I am. I live in San Diego, California, pretty near the beach. Uh, and I spent most of my time hunched over a computer keyboard frowning.
0: <laughs> frowning because uh, it's it's difficult to get the words uh, or, or frowning because you're empathizing so much with your characters. Uh,
1: no, it's difficult. <laughs> it is difficult to get the words. It's, it's um it's the only job I've ever had that I really enjoy. Uh, I, at this point, I can't imagine doing something different, um, but that doesn't mean it's not hard or, or frustrating. It always feels like everything I'm trying to do is just beyond my skill set. And every day I sit down at the computer, I play this uh, game in my mind where like I'm trying to convince myself that I can get those words that I need to get that day or that I could tell the story. I'm trying to tell the way I try to say it. And... Uh, it's it's always a struggle at the end of the day i get my words and if i didn't accomplish what i was trying to accomplish just in terms of the quality of the words or whatever i know i have another chance to make that up to revise but uh every day i always have that thought in my mind like oh i can't do it i can't do this so that's why i frown
0: fair enough what time of day are we talking are you starting with coffee or
1: i'm starting with a lot of coffee uh about six I start with a half a pot, so that's uh, six cups. Now, it sounds like a lot, but they're six-ounce cups because that's just the way coffee makers are made, that they measure cups in six ounces. So I'm probably drinking like the equivalent of like two or three uh, Grandes at Starbucks per day. And uh, then I look at YouTube a lot and Instagram and Pinterest, and I waste a bunch of time. And then eventually uh, I start to feel bad about myself so I start writing and then I set myself a pretty modest goal, like maybe like between 500 and 1,000 words a day. Uh, but I do that six days a week um, pretty consistently. And that's what my work day is like. And if I finish those um, words early, that's great. Then I have the rest of the day to kind of mess around, um, take a nap, which is a very, increasingly, that's a very high priority is to get my words done so I can take a nap. Um, and just do some hobbies or whatever but if the words don't come then i might find myself working uh after dinner late at night whenever however long it takes to get those 500 to a thousand words
0: so you're not going to bed until you've got those words done
1: yeah although honestly because it's only 500 to a thousand words it's, it's i usually manage to get it done like you know midday midday uh, it's it's not often anymore that i have to pull an all-nighter or something like that unless i'm behind or i'm working on multiple projects and they all have looming deadlines um then yeah it's been a while it's been a while since i found myself like writing like a 12 or a 14 hour day i really try not to do that the other thing i do is like i don't try to go over my word count by too much because i find like if you know i'm trying to get a thousand words and instead i get 2500 then probably for the next four days i'm ruined and uh, I'm not going to get any words, and then it's not going to average out to even like my minimum word count. So I, I'm just very uh, worker-like about it. I, I, I go to the, the factory, I punch in, I do my job, and when the piece is finished, that's when I can get up and go do something else.
0: Gotcha. And of course, um being an author unfortunately is a lot more than just the, the 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 glory of frowning and 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 beating yourself up over over not writing, although I think that's that's a part of every writer's process. Yeah, sure. I don't know why it's, it's so masochistic. If so I try to tell myself like this first 20 minutes, I know I'm gonna screw around. Of course, I've got the internet and I consistently close it about the same time. And instead of just accepting that that's part of the process is to screw around first, then this about the same time every time like, no, you're wicked and evil, stop it, do the right thing.
1: <laughs> you know, the, 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 the challenge with writing, the biggest challenge is just getting over your own psychology. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because the brain is just saying, like, you expect me to make something out of literally nothing. You're not even giving me, like, it's not like you're building a, build, uh, a birdhouse where, like, you have some wood and you have some tools. You just have nothing in front of you. And the brain is saying, like, no, no, these are not good working conditions. And I'm protesting I'm not going to cooperate with you. Uh, but yeah, we all put ourselves through that for some reason. I don't know why.
0: But, uh, it is—it is what it is. Because I've talked to enough writers now to know that that's fairly consistent behavior. There's like one or two healthily uh, arranged, mentally uh, folks that I've encountered that thats not a problem. I'm so jealous. Like, wow. Yeah,
1: I don't get them. I don't get them. I don't know. <laughs> they're, they're, <laughs> that's a different—that's a different planet than I come from. My, our brains evolved differently. I don't know what's up with them.
0: I tell myself the lie that well it, that' it's not artistically uh, tortured enough so that must come through in their work. it must not be as beautiful and now it's beautiful work. it's absolutely incredible. Oh, yeah not- yeah no I think good work actually
1: comes from happiness and contentedness and a sense of security. I, I don't I don't think the suffering helps at all I, 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 I don't I don't know what the purpose of it is uh, and it probably has something to do with I don't know you know like maybe in the early days uh, our monkey predecessors before they get up and like climb a tree for fruit, they'd be like, Oh God, not today. Not today." I just want to sit here on the Savannah. You know, if a lion comes and gets me or a large monkey comes in or a large eagle comes and gets me, but I just don't want to climb the tree. And then eventually they climb the tree and they get the fruit and they're like, why did I waste 20 minutes on the Savannah doing that? That was, that was, that was purposeless and nonsense.
0: And those monkeys eventually, uh, what do we call them, those ancestors, uh, eventually uh, became us. And then in the opposite tree, the well-organized, mentally healthy uh, ancestors became (laughs) the writers who are having this issue now.
1: Yeah, maybe they were in the tree getting the fruit, and the tree got struck by lightning and burnt down, and it was the lazy, maladjusted monkeys that survived. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know why we do that.
0: You mentioned uh, it's, a, it's a game you're playing that you want to hit this this count. So when you hit it, how do you reward yourself? And conversely, how do you punish yourself if you don't?
1: I don't punish myself. You know, like writing is supposed to be fun. There are a lot of uh, other jobs that pay better or more secure. And I'm not saying they're better jobs or easier jobs. But we could do something else, and I chose to to write. So I've learned not to punish myself. And if there's a day that I don't get, really don't get that word count, that's okay. I, you know, I'll, I, I've done this long enough that I know I'm going to hit my deadline one way or the other. I'm going to hit my deadline because I'm uh, because I'm consistent about writing six days a week. I pretty much know that I'm not going to be panicking to hit my deadline. I, I just know that about myself. And in terms of rewards. Um, the reward really is just getting to get up and go do something else, whether that's getting up, you know, and going to have like a fish taco for lunch, or more usually just um, give myself permission to waste time because I have the satisfaction knowing that I got my word count that day, or just do something else, pursue another interest. I mean, that's a luxury that I have. That's kind. Of, that's kind of a reward in of itself. Just having the luxury to know that you've written, you've done your job. And to go off and get to have fun or stimulate your brain in some other way that's that's not work.
0: Well, what kind of uh, hobbies are you doing for fun afterward?
1: Oh, you know that. So it's the whole goal with the hobbies this is ironic. So the whole goal with the hobbies is to get away from computers because um, you know when you have these devices that are like windows into all the information in the world instantaneously, and it's a, it's it's a fire hose, it's a fire cannon and you know uh, a lot of world events they're just upsetting so it's good to step away from the computer uh so i've uh kind of gone through phases i really enjoy building stuff with lego um i like playing the guitar um recently i've taken up you know whittling just being like an old man with a knife and a stick of wood whittling away the irony though is that all of the instruction on how to do this stuff is so readily available on the internet so suddenly, now, like I'm just drinking from a different fire hose. Now I'm drinking uh, from a fire hose that's going to teach me, like, how to whittle an owl, you know, or how to, uh, how cool ways to build spaceships. The other thing with my hobbies is I feel there's a pressure to be good when I'm writing. My job, part of it, you're supposed to be good. You're supposed to make the best thing you can make. And others, if you're doing it so that others will consume it, participate in it, partake in it. You want it to be good. Uh, With my hobbies, like, I don't have to be good at it. If my owl looks like a lump of wood, that's totally fine. If my guitar playing is uh, horrific sounding, I'm sorry for the people that live with me and neighbors and stuff like that. But it's okay. I don't have to be a good guitarist. Then you go on the internet. And, of course, everybody on the internet is whittling these amazing things, building these amazing Lego constructions, just shredding on a guitar. And uh, there can be some... uh, Pressure to say, like, well, then I, I should be good at this too. So it takes like an act of will to say, like, no, it's okay that I'm bad at it. And those are the kind of hobbies that I try to do. I don't try to, I don't want to make any money from them. Um, I don't want them to be judged or assessed by anybody else. And I don't want to put pressure on myself to be good at anything like that. And that's to me the opposite of writing. So those are the kind of hobbies that I enjoy
0: do you worry that politicians and world leaders are not feeling the weight of your obsessing over their news stories and tweeting at them Uh, are are you concerned that while you're while you're seeking personal happiness that you're you're (laughs) not stuck in this do me vortex
1: why isn't my senator personally reading subscribing to my twitter feed and responding to my great ideas uh yeah no because that's not what's happening and and um Even though, you know, there's there's so many ways to uh, elevate and make visible things that need to be elevated and visible and people need to be aware of to weigh in on stuff so that people that are um, marginalized and oppressed, so that we're not silent about that, that we're not alone. But the temptation to feel that you've really accomplished something just by posting an angry tweet, uh, that's an overwhelming temptation. So uh, I do catch myself saying like, you know what? Maybe instead of being quiet about this, I should just donate some money to people that are actually in a position to put in policy changes to affect change, to do something positive and to leverage you know communal power um, and me just tweeting something angry is not really contributing to that and and, and that's another thing I've learned it's like it, it feels like you know like I, I I have to tweet angrily at somebody, otherwise I'm not participating uh, as a citizen. And, uh, and there's probably better ways to participate as a citizen than just angry tweets.
0: There is. There have been tweets that made me chuckle, some tweets that made me think a little bit, but there's never been a, a tweet I read that like, oh my God, let me throw out my entire ideology and think all new thoughts because of what I just read here in this tweet. I've never read
1: a tweet that instantly did that. I have read tweets that made me like, oh, that's something I hadn't thought of before, or that's a, an issue or a problem uh, that somebody who's not like me has that I wasn't aware of. And... Um, it's, it's just uh, there's there's so much garbage out there. It's difficult to find the stuff that's valuable. And I wish we could kind of switch that ratio so that social media was actually useful and as powerful as it should be. I mean, you know, right now, like I'm finding out on social media about every librarian, school district, uh, you know, state where book bannings are taking place. And that's something that I feel as a writer, I need to know about. I need to know about uh, it concerns me um it affects me like not necessarily directly because I'm not concerned like oh no I'm not selling my book in Sarasota Florida but I'm concerned that like oh there's kids that are not having access to books in Sarasota Florida because their school district basically said teachers and librarians can't buy new books can't have books donated can't participate in scholastic book fairs and that's something I found out about social media and that's something that I wanted to be aware of I don't need to read 1,000 tweets reacting to it That to me is not healthy, but knowing about what's happening to me, that's healthy and useful. So there's a little bit of necessity, I feel, in staying engaged with the world and social media is one way to do that. Um, But it takes, uh, again, it takes an active will to do it so that it's productive and useful and not um, a waste of time and not damaging to me or other people.
0: Well, when you read about something like that, that isn't your wheelhouse, you're an author, you're reading about banned books, those are librarians, some of whom you're going to have a relationship with, or you might have seen at some point or another. How, how, how can you be activated? How can other authors who are listening to us be activated when you see that book bannings are going on?
1: Well, one thing is, I, I like to find out who are the activists locally that are doing something about it. Um, there might be groups organizing to um, donate books, to make books accessible to people. There's money you can give them. I mean, I've offered to send to anybody who contacts me in Sarasota, Florida. I've offered free copies of my books that maybe they could put in a little free library or give directly to a kid. And that's a small thing. Uh, the main thing we have to do, every one of us has to do, and I, I, I don't, I'm not. Um, I'm not a social activist. I'm not an expert in politics or even an expert in freedom of speech. We need to participate in our local communities and voting for people that aren't going to do the horrific things that they do. City council members, school board members, people that are going to protect the rights of kids to read books. Um, there's always uh, an elect local elections going on. As outsiders, we can always still donate to those campaigns. Um, but, yeah. And then sometimes it does feel helpless. There's like, what what can I do in, for people in Sarasota, Sarasota, Florida, which is literally on the other side of the country from me? What can I as an author do? It's a gesture just to tell people this is happening. If you're not aware of, you should be aware of it, to offer to donate books and, and then do some research and find out who in Sarasota, Florida is combating that, who in other communities are combating book banning and see what they want us to do you know take 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 the lead from the people on the ground actually fighting this battle in that community
0: i think that's fantastic advice esteemed audience all of you are going to put this into motion right now and the world's about to be a better place we we've we solved one problem next problem we're going <laughs> to Okay. here tonight <laughs> no that that makes a lot of sense um, I, I think that's a good plan of attack um, I was wondering with the uh, with the hobbies being uh, within the arts realm because uh, I know that you've got uh, a huge sweet water want list right of guitars that you're gonna you're gonna play uh, to, to varying levels of, of, of mastery because it's just a thing that you're doing for you and and, and with your wood carvings and everything else does that help feed in re- replenish your creative well for writing does that help balance you if you're not having a great day writing but you carve the perfect thing
1: uh well first of all i've never carved a perfect thing or even a competent thing or even a recognizable thing in my entire life um i try to keep them separate in a way because i feel like um I, i spend a lot of time working as a writer and thinking as a writer and then uh not just creating works of fiction but promoting books and um keeping up with what's going on in the industry it's good just for me to be uh, a well-rounded person to have an alternative to that. But at the same time, one of the best pieces of writing advice I ever got was from the writer, Maureen McHugh. And I um, was at a writing workshop and the one piece of advice that most stuck with me, is she said, uh, write about your obsessions, because that is, if you're writing about what you, what compels you, what obsesses you, the reader's gonna find that uh, compelling and obsessive. So. I've already, in Weird Kid, uh, that kid plays guitar and bass because when I was writing it, I was really deeply obsessively interested in playing stringed instruments. And so I put that obsession and I gave that to my character. I think that made my character just a little more three-dimensional and interesting. I'm already thinking about the next book I'm going to write after the book I'm writing. Um that character is going to be a whittler and I figured out like how would whittling fit into this kid's life which is in the far future and takes place in outer space and I'm like oh yeah that's why whittling makes sense and it'll just be fun for me to give this kid my whittling obsession so it my interests always seem to find their way into my books and my characters.
0: Well if all the evil aliens are made of wood. Well, then, that's, that whittling skills really going to Oh, yeah.
1: Hold still, alien wood, wood beast. I'm going to very slowly and methodically whittle you into a mushroom <laughs> and probably cut my fingers, and at the end, you will be unrecognizable as a mushroom. Yeah. No, the kid is going to be it's, – It's. I, I want to play with terraforming, the idea of terraforming, of turning planets into Earth-like environments. And I thought um, – If a kid is really into doing that, that means the kid is a builder, a maker, and it'll just be an interesting character trait to have them, you know, whittling trees or whittling the strange animals they want to make. It'll be fun. It's also, how do you establish very early on the sort of uh, milieu, the time and place that it's taking place in? And I thought, I'll just have them whittling a piece of wood, but it'll be wood that he grew in a laboratory it'll be artificial wood just the way he would make artificial trees and I thought like boom there I've got a way to establish the place the setting what this character is engaged in at the beginning of the book plus I get to write about my whittling obsession I get to have him sharpening the knife and I get to have him like you know practicing the different kind of cuts so it's self-indulgent but it'll it'll kind of work with the story and it'll work with the book and it has a uh an authorial reason for being there
0: well, that makes way more sense. But if you want the wooden aliens, they're yours. That, that's yours to take with you. Just thank, thank me. In the you. Thank
1: book. you. I, I, I'm going <laughs> to write that down, put in my little notebook.
0: <laughs> Esteemed audience, if you're out there thinking that wooden alien idea sounds pretty good, I'm going to write. It. No, that's for Greg. That's not. You come up with your own idea. <laughs>
1: so we can <laughs> all have wood aliens they'll be filtered through our weird psychologies and they'll be all vastly different weird aliens maybe we'll do a wood alien anthology
0: oh yeah that makes sense
1: plenty of room for wood aliens
0: uh, i want to say like the Pinocchioans. so i don't know what these, what these aliens I are with these
1: like but the pinocchians
0: pinocchians now we're talking i like that yeah Get, uh, john Clyde bemis our resident pinocchio expert in there he'll he'll, he'll write the cover story we'll be right behind and we'll be in good shape <laughs> so um well one more question about the the obsessions and then I want to talk about Fenris and 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 Mott. um but with the obsessions when you uh write uh, about a, a child who loves guitars or a child who loves uh whittling do you feel like I don't know if exercise is is the right word, but you've you've taken that like, okay, well, I put that that part of me into a novel. Now I'll put something else into something into uh, my next character. Or is it okay to be like John Grisham and every character every time is a lawyer? Or Stephen King, every character is a writer.
1: Yeah, well, I think it works for them because John Grisham writes a genre, legal thrillers. I think it works less well for Stephen King because after a while, like, I don't know that uh, the world. Even I, a writer, I'm not interested in reading that many stories about writers. But I do like to give uh, just windows into things that interest people. So you know, a a window into the world of whittling. Not every character has to be a whittler. A, a, um, A window into the world of somebody who's trying to learn to play a guitar. And and but I don't need every character to be a guitarist. And that's not. I'm not really thinking of what the audience wants or what the audience needs. I'm just thinking like me. I don't want to write a character who's like a guitarist for every one of my books. I'm not saying I'll never do it again. But uh, yeah, and I, th- I think if I did that, I'd probably start writing this, that character would end up being the same uh, in other ways with the same personality and the same background. And, and I think that would be less fun for me to give characters all those traits. It's, it's a little more fun to me to figure out what's a new fun thing to write about. In Fenderson Mott, the character has a root beer obsession. She's obsessed with root beer and does root beer reviews on a YouTube channel. I'm not that obsessed with root beer, honestly. So, my, my obsessions and the character's obsessions often aren't the same. Uh, when they are the same, what's great, though, is I don't have to do the research. I won't have to do research. And uh, I didn't, I, it's not like I decided the character's a whittler. And then I got to go figure out, like, well, what's it like whittling? You know, I, 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 that, that part of the homework is already done for me same with guitar. Yeah. I didn't I'm like, Oh, I don't know. And I, I didn't give them something to learn that I'm not familiar with or what a guitar shop looks like, how it feels to play guitar, what the words are, you know, the terminology I already knew that. So, um, that's sometimes why it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fun to put my own obsessions into stuff. Cause I'm, 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 I'm not afraid to skip hard work. I'm not, a am not a, avert. I don't have an aversion to not doing homework and not doing research. So, if I can skip that, that's, that's also an added benefit.
0: Well, does that make an argument for uh, cultivating new obsessive passions?
1: Yeah, I mean, sure. Sure. You know, I mean, in a broader sense, and um, this is what I tell uh, kids when I talk to them and they ask, like, how to be a writer, it's just cult- uh, like, be, not, it's not necessarily cultivate an obsession, but be curious about the world and be open to things. You know, especially at that age, their brains are opening up uh their worlds are expanding they're getting to choose their own interests rather having interests sort of hoisted upon them or assigned to them so um it's just really useful just in terms of life just be open to stuff and try stuff i just think that's like maybe good life advice i don't need to cultivate new obsessions the obsessions always cost a little bit of money guitars are very expensive lego's not cheap uh, whittling. I've tried to keep myself not uh, to not collecting a wide array of expensive, you know, exquisite uh, boutique knives. You know, uh, but you could spend a lot of money doing that stuff, and and I, I spent enough on my hobbies. I don't I don't need to find more.
0: Wow. or um, continue to write uh, hugely successful books, and then you can <laughs> you can have more expensive hobbies.
1: There's like this sort of balance, like,
0: ah, can I write this off on my
1: taxes? (laughs) Is this enough of this hobby going to writing my book that I could write off uh, an expensive guitar on taxes? My accountant so far has said no. (laughs) And uh, she is trying to keep me out of prison. So I I listened to her, but like, ah, man, because, you know, if I could write off like a $5,000, like hand-built guitar, I'd put that in the book. That would be sweet. And it is funny you mentioned my Sweetwater wish list. Sweetwater, for those who don't know, is a music online retailer and they have wish lists. And at one point, my wish list was over $30,000 of guitars and music here that I wanted. And I was just glad they did not have one click ordering on an entire wish list because that would have been a painful moment.
0: <laughs> well, absolutely delightful at first until the bill came. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I
1: mean, it's like, I'd I'd be arguing with myself, like, well, on one hand, I'm out $30,000. On the other hand, oh, look at all this sweet gear. It would either be the best decision I made or the very worst decision, probably both at the same time.
0: So I want to talk uh, more about your process. I want to talk about your origins to how you got into publishing, all that good stuff. Uh, But probably the best way to go about that is to start with a specific book like the um, recently available Fenris and Mott. Hey, there's a copy. The audience can be picking up their copy right now. Contact your library. They've probably got a copy. If they don't, ask them to get one. You'll be in good shape. So uh, true to my word, I will not make you sit through me summarizing your book. Uh, What does esteemed audience need to know about Fenris and Mott?
1: It is what I call a contemporary fantasy that takes place in our recognizable world at our recognizable time. Uh, in this case, I actually put it in Culver City, California, which is a suburb outside Los Angeles, uh, which is my hometown. It's where I grew up. Um, so our main character is a fifth grader going into sixth grade. It takes place in the summer between. Her name is Mott. That's uh, short for Martha um she's recently moved to california she's been cut off from the life she knew uh her friends her partner that makes youtube root beer videos with her um her mom came out on the promise of a job and uh that job was gonna be uh help them able to afford a nice apartment with a koi pond and mott was going to be able to get a dog then her mom doesn't get that job and they kind of have to downgrade their expectations so she's not going to get a dog at the beginning of the book that's her biggest heartbreak she happens to find uh an abandoned puppy uh in a recycle bin in an alley and Mott makes the promise that she's no matter what going to take care of that dog that dog is going to be okay Mott understands that that means really she's going to have to take that dog to a shelter where it will be taken care of and adopted out Uh, which is a difficult decision for Mott, but that's the promise she made. The the puppy turns out to actually not be a dog puppy. It's actually a baby wolf. And as it happens, it's not just any baby wolf, it's Fenris, which is the wolf from Norse mythology, uh, who is destined to lay waste to uh, cities and and countryside and uh, kill Odin. Eat Odin, who is the god's chief, and ultimately eat the moon. And this is all part of Ragnarok. Ragnarok is the Norse myth of how the world ends. And this wolf is an important part of that prophecy. So now, Mod has made a promise to take care of that dog, to take care of what is now actually a wolf, a wolf with massive destructive capabilities, even though it's still just a tiny little white fluff ball and it's adorable. Um, So what does she do to keep that promise? Will she break that promise? Can she protect the dog, the wolf, uh, who's being pursued by Norse gods? Can she prevent the wolf from destroying the world? And uh, can she find um, happiness and joy along the way? She's teamed up with a Valkyrie, a Norse warrior woman. This is a young Valkyrie, still a girl. Um, So there's uh, a newfound friendship, there's weird encounters with very strange Norse personages from Norse mythology, and there are all the portents of Ragnarok happening, including tidal waves and wildfires and earthquakes and uh, strife among men and women and battles, uh, all in Los Angeles, uh, the Los Angeles area. So that's basically what it's about
0: so I was curious as I was reading this, if you were to eat Odin if you're a wolf and you i assume a, a monster wolf, as described in mythology would enjoy eating consuming flesh uh, this doesn't get much better I imagine than than Odin you know the god. I mean that's got to be like the best meal around it's the probably monster, pretty good it's very it, that's like you know it's like eating sand after the most delicious steak you ever had but. <laughs> It's just just something that struck me. I feel like that order should be reversed. Suffer through the moon, and then you can enjoy Odin. (laughs) Well, I feel
1: that uh, my dogs eat everything, and they do not not seem to have... I mean, they love to eat their dog food. They love chicken. They love salmon. They also love wood. You know, they love grass. Uh, They love um, poop. Uh, They're not the most discerning palates, our, do- our, our dogs when our older dog dozer the first week we had him i found myself removing a uh, a severed bird's leg out of his mouth and i'm just like why would you eat that why would you eat a severed bird's leg and i realized like yeah these dogs just eat everything and fenris is maybe like you know the most uh epic depiction of that dog trait he'll eat anything uh, he eats an A-level, A-list movie actor. He eats trucks. He eats trees. Uh, he eats a water tower. Um, you know, Odin is probably just a little snack along the way to eating the rest of the universe.
0: Well, let's see from that perspective. I the moon would look like a nice, baked, delish, uh, delicious treat. At least as good as a severed bird. Leg. Sure. Oh, yeah. How many dogs do you have
1: only have two. Uh, combined, they weigh less than 30 pounds. It feels two little active dogs. It feels like they feel like 12 or 11 dogs sometimes. Um, they're tiny, but they're beastly. Uh, so yeah, we have two dogs. Dozer uh, Dozer featured on the cover of uh, one of my earlier middle grade books, um, Voyage of the Dogs. So I feel that I should be able to write his dog food off on the taxes since... He definitely featured in the book. Um, Amelia featured as a dog named Growler um, in another another book, Weird Kid, because basically what she does most of the day, she just sits under furniture and growls at us. She likes to growl. Like, I mean, that's basically all Growler does. So the dogs have featured in the books. Um, I wish I could bring them out on school visits and things like that, because they would love the attention. when you're on a school visit, it's always good to bring some kind of prop to take the performance pressure off yourself. You know, things aren't going well. Just say, here, kids, here's a dog. You know, you've pretty much won the day.
0: Oh, that's a good point. You don't even have to prepare a presentation at that point. If you've got. You know,
1: I've been able to take them to a couple of book signings at bookstores, and I didn't even need to be there, honestly. I could have just brought the dogs. Dropped them off, put up a sign and say buy my book. And I think I would have been just as successful as I was with doing a reading and all that
0: stuff. Well, sure. Somebody might walk by you and not buy the book, but are they going to let down a dog?
1: Oh, was well, a, a little puppy face. There's dogs pretty much in all my books. At a certain point, I decided if you can have a dog in your book, why wouldn't you have a dog in your book? It's just like it's like it's like a story with like a bonus. There's a dog in it. Um, the dogs in my books never die. That's another. That's a. That's a. The one spoiler I always happily give readers, because I get asked. People are concerned, and they're usually relieved when I tell them I will never kill a dog in my book because I'm not a monster. I'm. I'm. A, I'm a human. I'm. I'm not. Uh, I'm not. You know. I'm. I'm not a monster. I'm not going to kill the dog in the
0: book. Humans fine. Dogs absolutely
1: not. Humans, I don't feel I owe them as much. Dogs are sacred.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I
1: humans die in my books. They do. Uh, and I don't feel bad about it. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't live with myself if I killed a dog in my book. And probably readers would come after me with the pitchforks and the torches
0: and things like that. I'm
1: not going to do that. I'm not going to risk that. I'm not going to risk that angry reaction.
0: Do you get uh, reactions from readers about how excited and enthusiastic they are to have uh, a story with a dog in it?
1: Oh, yeah. it's, it's I think it's the the number one book uh, loved feature of my books is the presence of dogs. Um because people love dogs and they like reading about dogs. It's when then and I'm a dog guy, so I, I get it. Uh, yeah, people seem I sometimes get like how about cats? And you know, like I have nothing against cats. I don't really intellectually understand their psychology or how they work anatomically. I thought of getting a cat, but I found myself uh looking on Google like how do you carry a cat? Because like where's their center of gravity? Like where 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 do you hold them? And when I realized like yeah, the cats just confuse me, I thought like probably instead we should go in the dog direction.
0: So uh, Norse mythology I know runs through a lot of your work. Uh, you've got your first novel uh, that was based on a short story that was also about uh, featured heavily Norse mythology, okay. right?
1: Yeah, so the first, uh, my first professionally published short story um, was about Ragnarok. Very different take. Um, it was called uh, Wolves Till the World Goes Down. Uh, that eventually became, uh, grew into my first novel, which was for adults, Norse Code. Uh, we had, when I was in fifth grade, we had one of those, uh, you know, uh, programs for kids who were thought to be smart. I mean, obviously... Oh, some errors and judgments were made when I was included in the program. Uh author of
0: 10 books, my friend. Uh, that, that, <laughs> I, I think we can say it's it's safe to say that you are uh intellectually gifted above average at least.
1: I'm verbal. I'll say I'm verbal. Um but we had a, a little thing where they would we would just have a unit on uh mythology and it was just basically a teacher just reading us stories of mythology and the ones that gripped me were the Norse ones and I think that's because I grew up in Southern California which is a Mediterranean climate so the Roman and the Greek stuff that didn't seem like very exotic to me it just seemed like oh yeah that's you know that's, I'm very familiar with palm trees and like hot weather and it didn't seem that interesting to me where the Norse stuff that was exotic and interesting because it was snow and mountains and large trees that weren't palm trees uh, and also just the, the I remember the Norse Book, uh, the Norse mythology book in the library that I checked out just had better illustrations than the Greek and the Roman stuff so that stuck with me I like that stuff and then in college I took a couple of classes that uh were about the you know the Icelandic history and the Viking civilizations and the Norse stuff so I thought at some point I'm gonna do something with Norse mythology and um Wolves we'll we'll to the World Goes Down was the first story I wrote that featured the Norse mythology, and I also love that so much of Norse mythology is centered on the prophecy of the end of the world and on disaster. And when you live in Southern California, that place is always on fire, or there's an earthquake, or there's a mudslide. It, it is a natural. Los Angeles is a natural disaster in progress. So I really twigged on. I really related to the whole Ragnarok prophecy. I thought that was interesting. So there's a lot of themes. There's a lot of themes and um, settings and and metaphors in Norse mythology that interest me. Um, I'm probably going to have to wait another five or six or seven or eight books before I come back to it. Uh, because I don't want to dip into that well too often. I probably dipped into it, maybe enough. I felt justified because the other stuff was for adults. And this is the only Norse mythology I've written for middle graders. But I'm probably, I should probably step back from that for a while.
0: Oh, without spoiling, Fenris and Mott seems pretty open for a sequel.
1: If it's a sequel to Fenris and Mott, and if there's demand, I mean, talking about the business of writing, uh, my contracts with HarperCollins are for single standalone books. So each book is a different story, different characters, completely different. Uh, You never know if Fenris and and Mott uh, sells cartons full and crates full and Harper Collins says like, yeah, we'd like to see a sequel. I would happily write one. I, I like to end my books so that they end, but that they do hint that there could be more story if somebody wanted to read it. So I'm totally open to the idea of writing another Norse mythology story in the Fenris and Mott universe. Um, but I'm also content to write other stuff, write other stories taking place in other stuff, other genres, other characters, other times, other settings.
0: Uh, and when you're talking about Ragnarok, uh, within the context of Enris and Mott, uh, it seems pretty clear that, that this is a metaphor, more or less, for climate change, yeah? for the climate disaster, climate Terribleness, whatever the yeah. term is. I
1: kind of went backwards on that. I didn't think that I, I didn't sit down and say, uh, didn't, told, told myself, I'm going to write a story about climate catastrophe, climate emergency, whatever. Um, but when I realized I was talking about um, the end of the world and in keeping with Ragnarok, part of that is extreme weather. I thought it would be weird. It would be weird and dishonest not to acknowledge that there is a parallel with the Ragnarok myth and with what is actually happening across the globe. So it would have been, uh, just weird and dishonest not to make that connection. So I decided if I was going to make that connection, I was going to kind of lean into it a little bit. Uh, it's not a book about climate change, but, uh, climate change is certainly something that is present in the book and there is mention of it. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, I feel it's important when you write about, when you choose what to write about, uh, it should be something that's important to you. It should have personal stakes for you, and it should have global stakes for a an audience of people who aren't you. And I feel climate change is just one of those things that is really, really, really important to be uh, for us to be grappling with right now. Um, so I felt that was a that was an important thing to write about. It fit with the story I wanted to tell. It didn't seem shoehorned in. Um, so yeah, I made the decision that climate change is going to be uh, a thread through this story.
0: And as we record this, we've just seen the passing of the um the inflation is bad, we ain't afraid of no inflation, whatever they end up calling an act. Yeah, they uh, build back better agenda by a different name with 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 great provisions that are largest investment yet in um fighting and, and trying to reverse climate change. Are you feeling a little bit more optimistic after the passing of that?
1: You know, I feel that there's a reason to be optimistic with this bill um i feel that there's looks like there's forward motion uh it's difficult for me to maintain hope and to fight out skepticism for a long time because uh you know laws can be passed and then other people can come back and cancel programs and write other laws that undo it so we're not out of i guess what i'm saying is we're not out of the woods uh this is not time for us to like Stop worrying and doing stuff about uh, climate emergency, and we really, really, really need to kind of keep our, our eye on the ball on this and keep pushing for more. Um, but it's it's not bad news. It's not bad news, and that's refreshing. <laughs> the bouncing of this legislation, it's not it's not depressing me and angering me and making me anxious. So I guess uh, so. I guess that's good. I'm not sure if I recognize any more what it feels like to be really optimistic and hopeful. Uh, Which is a problem because I try to infuse my middle grade books with optimism and hopefulness. One of the messages that I'm trying to impart to the audience is that you have the ability to uh, make change in your life and in the lives of others for the better. And especially if you're working along with other people, other characters, you can really make a big impact. And that is uh, a hopeful and optimistic point of view. And it's important that I believe it. Uh, when I write it, but it is uh, not always easy. It's 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 uh, it's a struggle. It's something I I contend with.
0: Well, having uh, just lived through, continuing to live through an ongoing pandemic uh, and, and all of the um, just absurd things that have come our way since 2016, uh, on for like, we've, we've all lived through incredibly dark times where it's been easy to give in to skepticism and lose hope. I know exactly that feeling. I, I read the news, I'm like, this is good, I think. Yes, mansion <laughs> came along after all, so I guess I don't hate him as much as I thought I did. I don't know how to feel.
1: <laughs> it's, it's, that's a really what it. Really, It's a so cognitive dissonance? Like, what does hope feel like? And like, is this hope? Is this false hope? Am I kidding myself? Am I so desperate for something to hope for? But you also don't want to like fail to recognize good stuff when it happens. That's that's not healthy either. Either in like you know national global politics in your personal life. Uh, in your writing career, you have to recognize good things when they happen and take notice of them, mark them. Um, there's there's uh, a lot of bad stuff, and the good stuff is important. There's a line from the Van Gogh episode of Doctor Who, and I'm going to misquote it entirely. But the Doctor says something like, uh, "There's a there's a pile of good stuff." and bad stuff in every life, and the good stuff doesn't necessarily negate the bad stuff, but neither can the bad stuff uh, destroy, annihilate, negate the good stuff. Uh, he said it, and it was those, those lines are beautifully written, much better than I just said it, but there is a that is a, a truth that I thought, like, sometimes stories tell us important truths that we need to be aware of, and I felt like that moment when the doctor said that, that was one of those moments. It was something I try to hold on to, that balance, and that's uh, something I try to put into practice with my own thinking in my own life, especially in in, in dark, rotten, uh, infuriating times. It's still important to hold on to the optimism.
0: You know, when I when I look at my life objectively from 2016 on, like, what was it all, darkness and misery? No, of course not. There were lots of great things I can highlight, wonderful moments. This sure. podcast happened during that time. If I nothing... A podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I got, you know, I started writing
1: um, middle grade books on a steady pace. There's lots of great stuff in my life. You know, I mean, I, I have a really, in a lot of ways, an objectively good life. Um, so that's another reason why, you know, you have to kind of balance your uh, your social media intake. Because it can be easy for, to forget that when it's a cannon coming at you of bad stuff.
0: Well, the nice thing, uh, I for a thing that I find uh, is helpful is to go and read history, and you know the 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 the, the um, standard question of if you could get in a time machine that only goes one way, and you had to live wherever you ended up, and you couldn't decide who you were gonna be, you're going to be, you going backward, you are going forward, forward, of course, you look back at history. Oh my god, this is so much better. This I would
1: like history. I would like history to be more like a buffet. I could take this from this era and I could take this from this era and I can transport it to a time and I have all these things. Like I would love, you know, I would love a time where there are more forests, where there were old growth, where there were like primary prime forests, primal forests. I would love that. It would be cool to see
0: dinosaurs. It's also cool to have antibiotics. Uh, you know. So um yeah. And electric fences to keep the dinosaurs behind. <laughs> sure.
1: Yeah, I might just take the plant eaters. I might just take, the, <laughs> I might just take the herbivores. I mean, the carnivores are obviously they're the more charismatic, cool ones. Uh, but I don't want to get, I don't want to get eaten myself, you know. So you know, you know, just look at a gigantic brachiosaur and be satisfied with that. Also, I wouldn't want to get, you know, I wouldn't want to get uh, impaled by a triceratops. So I don't know. Maybe I, we won't have triceratops either. Um, flying lizards—that's cool, but I don't want to get picked up and taken away to a nest to be eaten by young pterodactyls maybe dinosaurs is actually not the best idea maybe they should let dinosaurs be dinosaurs in their own era now that i think about it
0: discovery can follow around tyrannosaurus rex and the raptors and all that is shark week still a thing who cares about the sharks my (laughs) head
1: That's a thing. We would be getting eaten by T-Rex, but we would still have Tyrannosaurus Week because you know it it sells diapers and laundry detergent.
0: Well, if it's not you, it's highly entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> based based on the popularity of shark week anyway. <laughs> oh no, yeah,
1: it was good, good ratings. Good ratings. Yeah.
0: So uh, getting back uh, a bit to your process, you're getting up every day, you're setting your word count, that includes with, with Fenris and Mutt. And Fenris and Mutt, I assume that starts with getting a contract uh, established that you're going to write a book, it's going to have Norse mythology, it's going to have a wolf. How, how how involved, how specific is this contract That um, can is there wiggle room for you to, if you decide halfway through that, oh, I want to include this crazy thing that I hadn't cleared before I can, or...
1: I do have a lot of freedom. So the way, and it it works a little different with contracts. Um, So the the way I've worked with my editor, this is my, um, what do I want to say? This is my second contract, this book and um, the previous one, Weird Kid. It's the second contract i have had with this editor. So we're familiar with each other. She, her expectations have been set to what to expect from me. So what I'll do is I'll just kind of think like, what are some books that would be fun to write? Um, I'll write just sort of a, an outline, not, not a very detailed outline or a synopsis, just kind of give a sense for what the book is about. I'll usually do that for a couple of different book book ideas. Um, I'll send that to my agent. And I'll ask her like, what do you, what do you think um, looks like the most fun? Uh, what do you think is gonna be, has the most reader appeal? And it's just, I'm just sort of getting a temperature check. Um, if she shows enthusiasm, sometimes she'll show enthusiasm for one of those book proposals that I sent. Sometimes she'll have equal enthusiasm for all of them and it's up to me to pursue it from there. From there, uh, we'll send that to my editor. Um, My editor will say like, oh, I like this Norse one. That's a great idea. Uh, And then when the contract is written up, the language is going to be specific to that book, but it's gonna be uh, pretty vague in terms of what the book will be. So in this case, I think it was something like, Uh, A fantasy taking place in modern times uh, where a girl uh, interacts with uh, the Fenris wolf of Norse mythology. Now, if I decided later, like, I actually don't want to write about uh, Fenris, maybe I want to write about a different character from Norse mythology, a different dog, there's a lot of dogs and wolves in Norse mythology, or a different monster altogether. Or maybe I would like it to take place not in Los Angeles. Maybe I want it to take place like in Iceland. Maybe I want it to take place in prehistoric times. That would be a conversation. I wouldn't be forbidden from doing it. I would not undertake it upon myself just to make that call. We would have a conversation about it. And um, I think the possibility would still be there for me to write something different than what I proposed, especially if my editor understands, you know what, I thought my heart was going to be in thing A. It's actually very strongly in thing b as long as thing b isn't completely different from thing a i think i'd still be able to write that book it's never come up because like i'm not uh an endless uh factory that just produces a million different ideas you know i kind of get focused on an idea and especially once my agent thinks it's a good idea and my editor thinks it's a good idea then that's what i'm going to focus on i'm going to focus on that book and i'm probably not going to want to write something different um, but yeah, it's, it's uh, the contracts are uh, they're, they're not shackles, but they do kind of uh, establish a set of expectations.
0: And your agent is Holly Root, correct? Holly Root.
1: She is the uh, the founder and uh, uh, head agent at Root Literary. Uh, she is a fantastic agent. I love working with her. Um, I uh, I. She's kind of like everything I wanted in an agent. Uh, She's fantastic. Unfortunately, for the writers out there, uh, she has been forbidden by her own staff of taking on more clients. Um, But there are other agents that work with her at ROOT Literary, and all of them are really talented, passionate, and just like good, kind, nice people.
0: And if a esteemed audience wants to know more, Holly Root, uh, we had the good fortune to have her on this very show back in oh. eighteen. Check the back catalog. Uh, you won't you won't be disappointed. And if you're another agent at Root Literary and you've been wanting to come on the show, by God, get in touch. Let's make this happen. It'll be, it'll be a wonderful conversation. But your experience with Root Literary, that's a fine place for authors. You're very happy with the representation you've uh, received so far.
1: Yeah. And what I like about their agency is they have agents who uh, they all have Uh, Their own interests and stuff they like to represent. So for most kind of writing, um, there's probably an agent there for you. And of course, they're pretty clear on uh, agent query and uh, I think on their website of the kind of books they like to represent and the kind of books they don't represent
0: you sit down with the new project great contract uh perfectly negotiated by by uh, so all all your wishes have been fulfilled uh you you're, you're happy with that you sit down you've got a synopsis so you're trying to hit your word count so it's first day is just chapter one i know what happens in chapter one let's get 500 words toward that or what happens once you once it's officially go time once I know I got, oh, I once I know I have to write the book, I will
1: spend a couple of weeks um, brainstorming, and that's very unfree structured. So I'm asking myself, Greg, what do you want to have in this book? What do you want to have happen? Uh, just as importantly, what do you not want to have happen? You know, what what are you not interested in writing about? Because you know, some ideas and some genres they lend to themselves really easily to like. Well, obviously, you know, um, in a book about Norse mythology. Uh, we're going to have Thor. And it's like, no, I'm not going to have Thor. I don't I want Thor to feature in this book. That is something I wrote like, no Thor. Why? Not that interested in him as a character. I love the MCU movies. Not that interested in writing about a version of Thor as a character. Also too obvious because of the Thor movies. And it's going to invite comparisons to the Marvel Universe stuff anyway, because it's Norse mythology. Um I will start just because my brain juices are flowing. There's going to be scenes or bits of dialogue or characters that are just going to occur to me without me having to sit there and focus on making that happen. And I'm going to write all of those down. Um, After a couple of weeks, that's starting to sort of take the shape, not of a synopsis or an outline, but a skeleton. You know, there are certain, there's a certain shape to the story. There's certain places where things are going to happen, certain things I want to have happen. Uh, and I'm going to start writing that down. And then, oftentimes, if I'm lucky, and I'm often lucky, I'll kind of know what the ending is. I'll know what the ending is I'm shooting for. So, I'm going to have pages and pages of handwritten notes. Some of it will be useful, a lot of it will not be useful. I'm going to take the stuff that's useful that I want to have in the book, and I'm just going to type, type it out. That, those typewritten notes. Uh, once I've moved them around in something that's a logical order so that my ideas for the beginning and my ideas for the middle and my ideas for the end are in the proper order, that's kind of a rough outline or it's a rough synopsis. And then it's an exercise of like, what's missing? How do I, am I going to get from this bit that I've kind of brainstormed to this bit that I kind of brainstormed, you fill in enough of those gaps and you have a synopsis or an outline. Um, it's, I'm not, uh. I don't rigidly stick to it because something that I thought was a good idea before I started writing the book might not work out. So uh, that's going to go away. But what I will make myself do when that happens enough that I find I'm deviating from the outline, I will go revise the outline. I'll write a new outline based on what I have written that I want to keep and the new direction that the story might be going in. Uh, So... The outline is not something that is fully formed at the beginning that I just methodically follow through the course of drafting the book, but it is, an outline is something that I feel I need. I've been a pantser, I've written without outlines, and I found uh, it doesn't save me time, it takes more time. With Norse code, at one point I realized I'd gone up in directions that uh, weren't working. And I remember one day at Starbucks, I used to write at Starbucks or another copy shop before work, one day I threw out 30,000 words, which was a good chunk of a book. And that was a bad day. And since that day, I pledged to myself to the extent I can to learn how to outline and to learn how to write from an outlined book. Uh, I'd rather have an outline that's uh, not working out and have to adjust than write without an outline and find I have a novel. I have like, chapters and chapters and tens of thousands of words that's not working out.
0: But even within that, you're keeping your outline loose enough that if you have sudden inspiration that, oh, wooden aliens, that'll work perfectly here or whatever it is, yeah. you, can, you can still move that outline around and still be more or less reasonably on track to come in about where you said you would, right?
1: Yeah, well, I know myself enough to know when I'm veering off because I lack inspiration or I lack energy or I haven't figured out how to mechanically do something in my story or a part that I thought I knew what was going to happen or I thought was pretty tightly plotted turns out to not be tightly plotted I thought I knew what I was doing I was like I don't know what I'm doing and then out of desperation sometimes like uh I'll come up with the with the Pinocchians we'll drop the Pinocchians in and I know myself enough to know like don't go with the first thing that occurs to you without considering how it's going to affect the rest of the story. And uh, don't just drop something in because it occurs to you if that's going to alter how the story ends. And if you do want to keep that thing, that if you do want to keep the Pinocchians, I have to have the discipline to think it all the way through to find out is that ending going to stay the same or does that, the book go off in a different direction and I have to write a new ending. So uh, sometimes it's tempting just like this chapter, completely different stuff happens. Uh, and fool myself into thinking, like, well, that's not that's that's not that's not going to mess up the the direction the story wants to go in. You know, stories have a certain uh, momentum. You know, uh, and you can uh, break that momentum by uh, an opposing force and send it into a different trajectory, and that's okay. But you have to be aware that that's what you're doing, and be cognizant, like, now I'm going to deal with a different set of story problems and a different set of puzzles and problems to solve. Um, but yeah, I can say like, oh, you know what? I think it would be interesting if they met this character and this happened, and uh, it does land me in about the same place, or a place, maybe a different place, but a place I can I feel I can adapt to. Um, that I do all the time, and that's fun. That's So it is a mix of um, premeditation and spontaneity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know there's some writers that work completely spontaneously, and then there's uh, a guy like Tim Powers, who's a writer I love, and he said, like, if he's got an outline and a spontaneous idea occurs to him, he beats it to death with a hammer. He resists the temptation to, to deviate from his outline. That's how he writes books. So much of writing is figuring out how your own brain works, um, you know, and and uh, the only way to do that, I feel, is to write books and to have to suffer all the setbacks and the problems and the obstacles and have to untie the uh the knots and um deal with the problems you've created for for yourself so much of that is just figuring out how the storytelling part of your brain works and um understanding that and understanding how to use that storytelling part of your brain as the most efficient story machine that you can make it into
0: issue I run into is I know how my brain works when it writes the book I just finished but the new book I don't know how to make my brain work uh, that's in, a gene the wolf in the new way for the new story
1: that is a gene wolf coat. you do not learn how to write a novel you only learn how to write the novel you are currently writing and there's a lot of truth to that and it's uh it's frustrating because I would just love like hey finally I've written 10 books now I know what I'm doing Easy peasy. Let's go write the other 10 and it'll be a breeze. And it's not like that. Every time I sit down, it's like, I've never done this before. What am I doing? How did I get those other ones done? I have no idea what I'm doing. And uh, yeah, and you got to figure it out all over again. I don't know why. (laughs) I have no idea why our brains work that way.
0: I I find I need to keep the other finished ones within eyesight so I can look over and like, I can't do this. I have done it.
1: (laughs) That is absolutely the one thing you get from writing books is knowing that you can do it. My very first novel, that's the only reason why I wrote it. I didn't write it expecting to get an agent, and I didn't with it. I didn't write it expecting it to get published, and it didn't get published, but it was a total success because I just wanted to say, like, I have written a novel, from the beginning to the end and it has a middle so now when I go on to the next one I can never say to myself like I can't do it because look at it I just did I can do it no matter how hard it is no matter how hard the day is writing I know like I can do it I know I can do it I have to remind myself sometimes I have to remind myself pretty strenuously like I can do this because yeah I've done it I've done it I've done it before
0: Then you got to keep your mind from playing that other trick on you. Well, I've already written my best possible novel. It will never get that good again.
1: (laughs) Fortunately, I'm not a big fan of my work. So it's like, oh, my God. Well, let's try it again. See if we can get it right this time.
0: I guess that has the upside of you're always about to write your greatest novel, I suppose. Yeah, some of my
1: greatest novel, like that's probably four novels away. So I got to write these four novels so I can get that magic, great, perfect novel.
0: So you, uh, you, you, you did a few different jobs starting out. You were what, an educational software developer. You're an ice cream scooper, part-time college instructor, telemarketer. When do you figure out you should be writing? And when you're in a town that has movie studios right there, why do you gravitate toward fiction rather than screenplays?
1: I lived in, I guess, what is Hollywood? Culver City, you know, uh, Sony Studios is there. It used to be MGM. Uh, the studio where they filmed like I Love Lucy and the original Star Trek and the original King Kong. I lived a block from there, but I didn't live in Hollywood. I was not part of that uh, industry. I didn't know a lot of people that were part of that industry. So it was just like, it could have just been a dairy farm that I lived next to, but I wasn't a dairy farmer and I knew nothing about cows. Um, Or, you know, I lived next to like the, the tuba factory, but I wasn't a tuba player I didn't play tuba. I didn't know how to make tubas. I didn't know anybody that was involved in tubas. That was just the backdrop of my childhood. Um, I, I loved books and I loved comics and I loved I loved TV and movies. But the beautiful thing about writing prose is nobody has to let you onto the studio a lot to do it uh nobody has to assign you an artist who can draw stuff and a letterer who can write the words you write you can do it all on your own it's also that's the one thing writing i mean that's the one thing that they actually teach you in school like even if it's not creative writing or fiction they literally are teaching you how to write sentences i did wasn't in a situation where anybody was teaching me how to use a movie camera or how to draw or you know how to be a dj on the radio or any part of show business i just i could write sentences so that's kind of what I gravitated towards. Um, I didn't want to be a comic book artist, but I couldn't draw. <laughs> so was, and I think if I loved it enough, like, you know, I, I'm, I I'm start off bad at everything I do. I could have worked at it long enough that I could actually draw a hand that didn't look like a ball with, like, sticks coming out of it. Um, but writing was, I guess, just the one thing that uh, I, I stuck with that I liked. Um, in retrospect, uh, you know, um, screen screenwriters make a lot more money than prose writers and they have a union. So it would have been smart if I had uh, at a very early age kind of focused my life, pointed my life at writing television or movies, that would have been smart. But I I didn't have that kind of smarts. So instead I write books and I'm content doing that.
0: Well, I've heard heard you talk elsewhere um, about uh, waiting on new contract opportunities once you've cleared out your current contract load. And uh, so I imagine there's always that moment of um, I don't know like if you're uh, on a, a trapeze and there's no net beneath you and you let go and you're certain you'll catch the next bar but what if you don't? Uh, those periods when you don't have another contract, what what gives you the confidence that there's going to be another contract? I'm still going to be a writer tomorrow, or is, is that elusive and imaginary? Do you not have that confidence? I do not. I do not have that confidence. And like
1: so, okay, so um, I wrote. Uh, my, I, my career, I kind of think of it in two phases. In the first phase, I wrote uh, one, two, three, four adult novels and two middle grades. That was the first phase of my career. And so the end of that, I had written an adult fantasy trilogy for Tor books, the California Bones books, and I really enjoyed doing that. Um, and then l- life kind of made, helped make a decision for me. My parents were elderly, and suddenly I found myself needing to take care of them. Uh, I was... Uh, at the end of my contract, I was out of contract. Uh, I was really tired because uh, taking care of elderly parents was like a Herculean like uh, labor. And uh, also, I uh, was no longer satisfied with my uh, literary representation, my agent at the time. So I felt like, let's make a clean break with no idea what I'm going to do next. So um, I, I, I took some time off, wasn't writing anything, Uh, I parted ways with my agent and I was without a contract and not knowing what was going to happen in the future. So, uh, the main question I asked myself is what do I actually want to write? I'm not contractually obligated to write anything. Nobody's going to be upset with me, uh, if I don't write another book ever, because that's kind of a dirty secret. Uh, the world is not demanding you write something. You kind of have to generate that drive to write from within yourself, um, you might have people saying, hey, I, uh, I like your books. So are you going to write another one? But no, we're just going to say, like, I'm literally upset. I'm going to force you to write another book. That's not going to happen. Not to a writer of my level. Um, so I thought, what's going to make me happy? What do I feel like writing about? I looked around my life. Literally, I looked around visually, and I saw my dogs, and I thought, like, I'm going to write a story about dogs. Where I am emotionally, uh, I've had a really hard time uh, taking care of my parents. I want to write something that I'm going to have fun writing. I'm going to write something that's going to make me happy. Um, And that's all I'm going to focus on. And so that, to me, felt the shape of a middle grade book. My adult fiction is gritty, uh, full of profanity, and full of people doing really, really nasty things to each other. And I did not want to live in that headspace for the six months to a year, year and a half, that headspace that it would take me to write a book. I wanted to be in a happy place, a fun place. That was dogs. What did I want to do with dogs? What would be fun with dogs? Let's put them on a spaceship. I'm going to write dogs on a spaceship. Okay, so uh, I did that. And then uh, when I f- had a manuscript done, it's like, well, I'm a professional writer and I have a book and I still want to have a career. I still want to do this. So it's time to see, it's time to talk to an agent. That's when I looked for a new agent. And uh, I didn't know when I was looking for an agent that not just that I, Greg, was incapable of writing another book that would be sold and published, but that this book that I wrote would be something of commercial interest to other people. I knew I liked the book. I know anybody else would. Fortunately, Holly Root liked the book. Fortunately, she found um, an editor at HarperCollins who also liked the book. And that just sort of started the second phase of my career, which is this so far has been standalone middle grade books. Um, At the end of fulfilling my uh, current contract with HarperCollins, I'll probably at some point think like, what do I want to do next? Do I want to keep doing what I'm doing in the way I'm doing it? Do I want to do something else? But I'm no longer afraid that uh, I won't get something published, that nobody will buy something from me. Not that I'm sure it will happen, but I'm not afraid if it won't. I will just adapt. Uh, And I say this very easily because that's still a couple of years out and I don't have to face it. Probably what will actually happen is I'll finish that last book of my current contract and I'll panic. Like, what? what's going to happen now? Nobody's ever going to buy another book for me. What do I do? And we'll have, this conversation will be very different. But right now, uh, I've survived being out of contract before. I think I'll survive being out of contract again.
0: And of course, if you wanted just a regular nine to five with uh, benefits you can count on and all that regular stuff, why would you have chosen writing, right?
1: Yeah. And, and the thing is, I don't, I don't feel I'm employable anymore. I'm not just employable because I don't have like marketable skills or anything like that. I feel I would just be a really bad employee. And I can't imagine having a boss, a boss who, why are you telling me what to do? I do what I want to do. I'm an artist. I, I can't imagine. can't imagine what it, it's a, it's a privilege to actually be able to uh, be a writer and not have to deal with that stuff I'd like to keep that going as long as possible
0: well the contracts come up and obviously the world is going to demand more middle grade um but do you have uh something in the back of your mind well you know what I would like to write another adult fantasy or I would like to write a romance or do you have like a bucket list of these are the stories I definitely want to get out before I'm done
1: No, I don't tend to come, I don't have, I don't have like a binder full of stories I want to get to. Usually when my brain needs to come up with ideas for a story, I'll come up with a few. And sometimes the ones that I don't end up writing first for that first book in the contract, I'll come back to that little cluster of book proposals I gave to my agent and that we sent to my editor and I'll write another one of those books. But I don't have a long list of stories I want to get to. I don't have a long list of things I want to write. Um, uh, right now, I'm kind of uh, dipping my toe into picture books because I think that's kind of an interesting thing that I've never done before. And it would, it's an interesting exercise to write a good story uh, with minimal number of words. So I'm interested in any of that. Maybe comics. I would love to uh, adapt one of my own things for the screen or work on somebody else's property. Um, but I'm really happy right now doing middle grade science fiction and fantasy. I, it's real, I feel kind of... I feel I'm in my stride. I feel this is my happy place. Um, I feel that uh, there is not a huge, but there is a readership for what I'm doing and that uh, I enjoy writing for. So I'm kind of happy doing this. Who knows, two years from now, it might be a totally different story. My, my brain might undergo some change. Uh, it Could be that uh, all middle grade books are now being written by AIs and uh, we no longer need humans to write them. I don't know. Um, but I hope to keep doing this for as, as long as I can. That's the way I feel today, right now.
0: Well, my hope is once the uh, the AI starts writing books, so not once they start, but once they get truly competent at it so that we can't tell the difference between their books and, and a human's book, uh, so they'll just start writing books for other AI. So super smart machines will enjoy them. And humans will be like, well, we better go back to the human writers. So we don't know what the AI are talking about anymore.
1: Yeah, my fear is that the AIs will be better at it than we were and make more money, generate more money for large corporations than the human writers. Uh, So I don't lie awake at night worrying that I'm going to be replaced by an artificial intelligence, but maybe that's short-sighted of me. Maybe I should be worrying that I'm going to be replaced by an artificial intelligence. Do you feel that worrying is, is going to stop this from happening? Worrying very seldom stops anything from happening. No, what we have to do is we have to dive down to the center of the planet where the mainframe exists. We'll call it uh, the Geppetto engine, and we might have to take it out. I don't know. know, I I don't like violence, but uh, I'm not unwilling to blow up a mainframe at the center of the planet.
0: I like to think that there's a version of humanity where we look around at each other and like, hey, you know what? We had a good thing here, but I think this AI, it's better.
1: Go ahead,
0: <laughs> spread your wings and fly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what are
1: we doing while the AIs are doing that?
0: Ah, uh, peacefully, quietly, going extinct. <laughs> okay,
1: yeah. Maybe we'll all just do, we'll play guitar and play with Legos and Whittle.
0: Uh,
1: it'll be like a nice peaceful retirement for the seven and a half billion of us on the planet.
0: And then the aliens will come down and they'll meet the AI and they'll be like, oh my God, thank God those humans are are out of here. This you are who we were hoping to meet eventually. We were just waiting.
1: <laughs> I think it's gonna be the wood aliens versus uh the AI, and it'll be like um, a franchise movie, uh Wood versus Steel. And uh yeah, I would I would watch that.
0: This anthology just became a seven book series. Oh, <laughs> God, yeah,
1: no, seriously. This I think we're on, I think we're on to something here
0: so um i'm gonna edit all that out of this podcast and then it'll just be ours so we can we can run with it later without the world stealing it (laughs) yes
1: please please preserve the commercial viability of this of this intellectual property we've created
0: now that we've we've broached uh, aliens esteemed audience knows i'm gonna ask because i ask everybody who comes on the show uh greg have have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost
1: Uh, No. And I'm a skeptic. I don't believe that, I believe there's probably intelligent life in the universe other than us, or maybe, you know, there's intelligent life and then there's us. Uh, I believe they're perfectly capable of faster than light space travel or uh, using uh, wormholes. I don't believe they fly in things that look like uh, pie plates and that they uh, use probes on us and mutilate our bovine. I don't think anything that anybody's reported uh, as a UFO or an alien in gray is that. Um, I want to believe because it just makes the universe weirder and cooler, makes our lives weirder and cooler. That would be neat if it happened. I wouldn't be upset if I were proven wrong, but I don't believe so. Ghosts. I happen to be writing a book about ghosts right now. I know I'm going to get, Greg, have you seen a ghost? Do you believe ghosts? I do not. I do not believe there's any phantasmagoric uh, experience anybody's ever had that can't be explained by uh, natural uh, science that adheres to classical physics and Newtonian physics or the human psychology. Do I want to believe in ghosts? No, because that's scary. I don't want to believe in ghosts. So do I believe in either? No. Do I want to believe in UFOs? Yes. Do I want to believe in ghosts? I'd just rather not. And that is my answer. Fair enough. I do believe in Bigfoot. I do believe in Bigfoot. That that dude's real. Pretty sure that dude's real.
0: Uh, there is uh, another podcaster whose name I shan't mention uh, who pointed out once that if they were to catch Bigfoot and put a, put him or her in a cage uh, and charge money to go see it at the zoo, uh, sooner or later that would lose, the, the mystery would be gone. Oh, okay, well, that's just another animal. We know the the, the 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 things about Bigfoot that are, unless you go into the really crazy conspiracies where uh, Bigfoot is actually uh, part of the Illuminati and connected to the lizard people, the sure. goes down the the, the deep. Uh, but if you're just talking like a big hairy ape-like creature that's a little bit taller, a little bit hairier than usual, once we get that thing in a zoo, it's just gonna we're gonna have that classified and we'll move on to the next thing, right?
1: I think we lose our sense of wonder or shock or outrage so easily because the world is just coming at us so fast. It's like, oh, that's a thing now? Okay. All right. Oh, Bigfoot's a thing now? Oh, you, you, they got him in a zoo? Okay. <laughs> then we just move on. Yeah. When I was a kid, I thought, like, that would be amazing. That would change everything, I would change reality. And I'm just like, ah, no, nah, it, it'll, it'll be a reality show that I won't watch. Uh, you know, they'll use them to sell laundry detergent and diapers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, it, it probably wouldn't be that big a deal, which is sad.
0: I feel that way about flying saucers uh, over the, the course of the pandemic. We had multiple. Uh, major disclosures uh, from the pentagon from the navy from like that that should be it that, 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 that they, they all but said the aliens landed right It was but like we just moved on i'm like oh there's worse pandemic news oh something political happened It's actually terrible and we we moved away from it and I, I i assume that that did not blow your hair back the 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 revelations that came out
1: no i i mean i think there's something and it's probably something made by humans that uh is May probably it's just R&D for some other startup in Northern California. And uh, again, yeah, it's probably something that's not as fun and weird as we want it to be. That's what's beautiful about fiction. It makes one of my things in fiction is I want to make the world as weird and wonderful as I kind of wish it were. Maybe it is in some respects, but not often. And and, uh, yeah, things are... If we just, if we captured the Loch Ness monster, it would be trending and it would be a news cycle or two. But then there would be something, you know, like, oh, the bees have guns now, and then we'd move on to that.
0: Yeah, we got over murder, murder hornets pretty quick. Uh, not pretty me. Quick. I'm deeply just... concerned about murder hornets.
1: <laughs> well, we should be. I mean, we should be. And if we do like get the Loch Ness monster, Bigfoot, we should be interested and concerned. There's a lot. There's a lot. The world is a lot.
0: If I got to choose, I go out in my backyard and it's the Loch Ness Monster, but that's, I don't know how I'm going to get the Loch Ness Monster to move, but I am way more comforted than if I go out there and there's murder hornets. Oh my God, I will never go outside again. It's
1: very easy to avoid the Loch Ness Monster. Don't go into Loch Ness if you're concerned about it. The (laughs) bees are mobile and can fly. (laughs) They have the advantage of numbers. The Loch Ness Monster is just, you know, chewing weeds down at the bottom of a... Very deep lake. I, I don't think we have to fear the Loch Ness monster. There's one thing in life that I'm not afraid of right now, and it is the Loch Ness monster. But I've actually been on a boat on Loch Ness, and at no point were they like, "Is this safe? Should we be doing this?" i like, "Yeah, it's probably fine. It's probably fine."
0: I, I will jump into the uh, and into the Loch Ness Lake to get away from the murder horn. It's like Nessie saved me. Oh yeah, I'll take my chances with Nessie any day. Yes. <laughs> Rick, this has been an absolute privilege and a pleasure. I appreciate you making time for me and for esteemed audience. Uh, my final question for you is always uh, some variation of if uh, you could go back to the start of your writing career, middle, wherever would have made the biggest difference for you and wherever it might make the biggest difference for anyone who's watching or listening to us. And you could give yourself some advice that would make easier your path and your career in writing. What would you tell yourself?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. It's it's been a pleasure and and a privilege, and I really appreciate you taking the time to to have this conversation with me. Uh, The thing I would tell young Greg, which is something I still tell myself today, is that just focus on the fun parts of telling your stories. Uh, As a professional author, so much is out of our control. So much is out of our hands. So much is... um, maddening and can be uh emotionally tough to deal with but uh the fun part is the fun you have the most control over and that's coming up with fun ideas and stories and writing them out and that's why we do this it's also actually sitting down at your computer and typing that is 99.9 percent of what you're doing as a writer and all the stuff reviews um sales, uh, even interviews and stuff like that. That is a very small part of your writing life. So really just keep your focus on your fingers and your screen and your keyboard and have fun doing it, whether you're doing it professionally or you're doing it as a hobby. Creating stories is an amazing thing to do and it's um, endlessly challenging. You'll never be perfect at it. Even if you write to the age of 204, and that's the great part of it, the fun part of it. It's, it's just um, the act of creation is our gift as human beings and it's our challenge as human beings. Focus on that. Have fun doing that.
0: Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Uh,
1: on Twitter, I'm Greg Vanikout. You might have to Google it just to get the spelling right, but I'm just Greg Vanikout, same on Instagram. Um, I have a website that I don't update often enough, but it is uh, writingandsnacks.com, writingandsnacks.com. Or if you go to gregvannecott.com, it'll take you there.
0: And as always, esteemed audience, for more information about me and more importantly, for interviews with Holly Root, as well as thousands of other literary agents, editors, authors, book people, head to middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.